In Europe, the following countries do not allow prisoners to vote. Russia, Serbia, Bulgaria, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. And as you know, there has been some controversy about this uh, recently as a result of some litigation. Peter Polser said to me at the break, he didn't see that this was the most important issue on the agenda for constitutional reform. But when things come up through the courts, you've got to handle them as they come up. And this has come up through the British court system and through the European Court of Human Rights, provoking somewhat of a small but very, very uh, bitter uh, crisis uh, in the polity. David Cameron, Prime Minister, said at Prime Minister's Question Time in 2010, you have this on the song sheet, you can hum along, uh, that it would make him physically ill even to contemplate having to give the vote to anybody who is in prison, suggesting perhaps that this is an issue that can be resolved viscerally, uh, resolved simply in terms of gut feeling. I don't think so. I think it's a complex issue. It does have important empirical uh, political science components. Who would vote if prisoners were allowed the vote? What difference, if any, would their votes make in the overall mass of voting? Uh, what would be the impact of their vote? Uh, would they vote in, a, in the constituency where the prison was located or in the constituency from which they were arrested and taken into custody? There are a whole lot of empirical questions as well as questions of political reality in terms of the willingness of the people or their representatives to put up with some change in the current system in the United Kingdom. And there are, besides these empirical questions, as I've discovered, some important questions of political theory. And those are what I want to talk about today. Some say even political philosophy. Lord Justice Kennedy, in uh, the case of Pearson, which eventually became the case of Hearst, um, said that if an individual is to be disenfranchised, that must be in pursuit of a legitimate aim. But he also acknowledged that in the case of a convicted prisoner serving his sentence, the aim may not be easy to articulate. articulate. The true nature of the disenfranchisement was, Justice Kennedy argued, best left to the philosophers to discern. And in Canada, when this issue came repeatedly before the Supreme Court of Canada, the government argued that this is a matter of social and political philosophy, and therefore it's not a matter for the courts. Therefore it's a matter for the government of the day to sort out by political means. And the Canadian Supreme Court was very short with that. It said the case is not merely a competition between competing social philosophies. It represents a conflict between the right of citizens to vote and Parliament's denial of that right. Whether this matter should be left to the politicians, left to the philosophers, left to the courts, is one of the things that we have to think about uh, today. The, the, the context is um, a case brought by a murderer, Hurst, uh, complaining first in the British courts and then eventually at the Strasbourg court that the provision of the Representation of the People Act denying convicted prisoners the right to vote represented an affront, a violation of a provision of the European Convention on Human Rights. Not one of the provisions that's listed in the main convention but a provision that has been added on in the first protocol of 1952, which you have on the back of your sheet um, as the second entry there. Governments that have signed this, being resolved to blah, 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 have also agreed to add this as follows. Article 3 of the first protocol, 
The high contracting parties undertake to hold free elections at reasonable intervals by secret ballot under conditions which will ensure the free expression of the opinion of the people in the choice of the legislature. It's Ian McLean's popular sovereignty being enshrined into the ECHR. But the Hearst Court, the Grand Chamber of the European uh, Court of Human Rights, said that although this appears to differ in the form it takes from the other provisions in the convention that explicitly say everybody has the right to do this and nobody shall be denied that, they said nevertheless this does is to be understood as conferring an individual right, not just a systemic political ideal of universal suffrage. They said the court has established it guarantees individual rights, including the right to vote and the right to stand for election. And certainly in the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, which you also have on your uh, sheet there, Article 25B makes it quite clear that so far as human rights law is concerned, this is a right that citizens have, so much so that the United Kingdom was moved to enter a reservation when it signed and ratified the International Convention. The government of the UK reserved the right to apply to persons lawfully detained in penal establishments such laws and procedures as they may from time to time deem necessary for custodial discipline, which is not exactly what the, the prisoner voting uh, issue is about, but it's an indication that the government was already uneasy about the blanket statement of Article 25 at the time of their accession to the International Covenant. You have at the top of the second page of your song sheet the provision of the Representation of the People Act that provides for the disenfranchisement of convicted persons uh, serving um, sentences in penal institutions a convicted person during the time that he is detained in a penal institution in pursuance of his sentence, or if he's unlawfully at large, if he's escaped, still doesn't have the right to vote, um, <laughs> is legally incapable of voting at any parliamentary or local government election. And then there's some discussion of uh, who exactly that um, applies to. So that's the, that's the provision that has been called in question by the European Court's decision, the Grand Chamber, that's all the judges assembled to deal with this matter in the case of Hearst. And by its treaty obligations to the Council of Europe, the government is bound to take notice of this decision and to do something about it. And this has been festering, as you know, for a few years, including the nausea that it has induced in the Prime Minister. And um, finally, a bill has been put forward for some consideration. Uh, now, you may think I'm joking, but the, the, um, the outline of the bill, the proposed bill that I give at the bottom there, just is the bill as it presently stands. It says, be it enacted by the Queen's glorious majesty, by the Lord's spiritual, and Ian, I'm sorry, uh, spiritual as well as temporal, uh, assembled, blah, 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 blah. And then it gives you a multiple choice question whether we will have option one, a ban for prisoners sentenced to four years or more, option two, a ban for, sentence, for prisoners sentenced to more than six months, or option three, we're not sorry and we're going to continue the ban that we already, we already have. So what we have is, the, is the, the, the shell of a bill with the main decision yet to be determined. Now, um, on three occasions in the last three or four years, 
I was invited, along with many others, to come and give some testimony to parliamentary committees at Westminster on this issue. Once to the Joint Committee on Human Rights in March 2011, and twice this year to the Joint Committee on the Draft Voting Eligibility Prisoners Bill, the thing I've just read out uh, um, in uh, June and in October of this year. And I'm under no illusion that this was anything special. Were, uh, on each occasion, I was a member of a panel of three or four people. And, um, but I was asked to address some questions which certainly count as questions of political theory. Um, I'll read out some of the questions that uh, were put to me, if I can find them. So questions, the list of questions were sent in advance. Do individuals have a right to vote? And right is in inverted commas. Is it a fundamental human right or a civil right? In what circumstances can it be withdrawn? Another question was, what is your understanding of the distinction between a right and a privilege? Why is voting a right rather than a privilege? Are there in any case such things as conditional or qualified rights which can be removed in specific circumstances. And then there were questions of the form, the government and various witnesses to this inquiry have referred to the need to uphold the social contract. As David was talking about. Is there a genuine social contract or is it just a convenient fiction? Hasn't the European Court of Human Rights by overturning the freely expressed will of a democratic parliament fatally undermined the social contract? Can the people be said to have given their assent to this exercise in judicial lawmaking? And then, can deprivation of the right to vote be justified by reference to any of the acknowledged purposes of punishment, such as deterrence, public um, protection, or rehabilitation? Whole range of questions. And I assume I was asked to address these questions for two reasons. First of all, I've written a lot very abstract about the nature of rights. And so I would be expected to know something about the grammar of rights and privileges, or the grammar of qualified and unqualified rights, and maybe even perhaps to be able to cast some light on this issue of fundamental versus non-fundamental rights. That was one cluster of questions. And political Chichele, professor of political theory, if he doesn't know about the social contract, who does? So get Waldron down to answer questions about the social contract. But specifically, and I think certainly for the first session back in uh, 2011, the committee did ask me to comment on the legitimacy of the European Court of Human Rights critique of UK legislation on this matter and the legitimacy and desirability of rights-based judicial review in general. Because as Ian McLean said in his, his presentation, I've kind of become notorious for being an opponent of at least strong judicial review on the American model, though much more favorable to weak judicial review of the sort that uh, the Supreme Court had ministers uh, in this country. And I'll talk much more about that distinction later. So there were those two classes of questions, one about the nature of rights and their relation to the social contract, one about the nature of judicial review. The other thing was that since I, since I had taught for many years, 25 years in fact, uh, in the United States, I knew a little bit about the situation there with which both 
our situation in this country and the proposed changes could usefully be compared. As you may know, every state in America except Maine and Vermont disqualifies felons from voting while they are in prison. There are a range of disqualifications in most of the states, depending on whether, or even after release, depending on whether you are still under probation or in some post-incarceration situation of supervision. Florida and maybe one or two other states impose lifetime disqualifications on felons. And sometimes, as in the great election of the year 2000, these are imposed not only on those who have felony convictions, but on those who turn up at the polls having the last name and the same color as people who have felony, <laughs> felony convictions. And um, one way or another, this, the effect of this has been to disqualify around 5 million voters in the United States. Now, the United States is a big country, but 5 million is a big number, especially when you realize it's about 13% of otherwise qualified African-American uh, voters. I mean, it's, it's complicated by the grotesquely high incarceration rate in the United States, and, and complicated, too, by the grotesquely distorted racial balance in the, uh, uh, in the US prisons. But it's something that is indirectly contemplated in the uh, US Constitution and the 14th Amendment, uh, even though some of the state constitutional conventions which put this into their law sometimes said, this was said at the Virginia Convention in 1906, this plan will eliminate the darkies as a political factor in the state in less than five years. I don't think this was actually put into the Constitution, <laughs> but it was uh, nevertheless in the record. But there's no question in the United States of this being judged unconstitutional. I thought long and hard, and, and I'm still thinking about the appropriate posture to adopt when one goes to give um, evidence on a matter like this. I don't think one's being invited to come down as an advocate. I think one uh, has a duty, a strong duty of professional responsibility to give one's best and clearest account of the relation between rights and privileges or of the social contract, or of the aims of punishment, and so on. So I most definitely decided not to engage in any advocacy, and if possible, this afternoon I'll try and conceal for as long as possible my own true views <laughs> on this vexed subject. Because the question is about the relevance and the engagement of political theory uh, in this, in this uh, matter. I did, however, manage to get hoist by one particular petard. I went down in 2011 and said, well, there was a wonderful guy called William Cobbett, who wrote in 1829 that the great right of every man, the right of rights, the right of rights is the right of having a share in the making of its laws. And uh, I had used this in Law and Disagreement and elsewhere as a way of bolstering the importance of popular sovereignty, of uh, bolstering the importance of Colonel Rainsbury's um, uh, observation that um, Ian quoted. And uh, so I said this was tremendous. I even brought down my first edition of Cobbett to wave at them. And this is not quite true. One of them said, let me have a look at that. <laughs> but one way or another, they had a look at it. And they found about three sentences later, that Cobbett said, however, men stained with indelible crimes are excluded because they have forfeited. <laughs> so sometimes you can fall into some danger with the uh, selective quotations to which we are all tempted. But as I said, it was important to, I think, just give the best 
account I could give, both of um, what the relevant rights, how the relevant rights were to be understood in terms of their logic or grammar, uh, and how a case could be made, if a case were to be made, for continuing uh, felon disenfranchisement in some form or another. United Kingdom no longer really recognizes the, the status of a felon. Um, I think it was abolished finally in 1967 as a distinction between offenses. Um, and this, the disenfranchisement we currently have distinguishes only between those who have been imprisoned and those who have not been imprisoned. And one of the reasons, I think, for maybe looking to have at least some threshold is to exclude any form of arbitrariness where there was a real question simply in terms of ability to pay a fine or something like that, whether a person would be imprisoned or would, whether that person would remain in the community effectively for the same offending. And I think the committees I spoke to appreciated that. But the right to vote, if indeed it is a right, is a curious animal. We know that in some countries, Australia, for example, it is combined with a duty to vote. And it's, a, it's an offence to fail to mark your ballot paper at an election, an offence punishable by a small fine comparable to a parking fine, but punishable nonetheless. Uh, and other countries that impose a legal duty to vote include Argentina, Italy, Peru, Singapore, Switzerland, and Turkey. And I do think that the right to vote could be understood as one of those rights that is also a responsibility. A little bit like the, uh, the right to serve on, on juries, which women campaign for long and hard in the United States when they were excluded from, duty, from uh, jury duty. Or even the right to serve in the military, which um, gay men and women argue for. It's, it's a right they are demanding to be recognized as people worthy of holding this duty of service uh, along, with, along with anybody else. Some rights are responsibilities, and I think it's very important to understand that. And many of us might think that if one prisoner, one prisoner puts up his hand and says, I'd like to vote in the next election, it's not entirely clear why that should be regarded as arrogant as opposed to a tiny sign of rehabilitation, somebody willing to take on the, this element of service. That's less important than my next point, which is that when you exercise the right to vote, you are not exercising a liberty in the way that free speech is the exercise of a liberty. If you exercise the right to vote, you're exercising a power which has implications for the interests of other people. Now, it's a tiny share of power. But think of it this way. The charter of a company may say that a check over 10,000 pounds is only valid if it's signed by two out of the three directors of the company. So a director's signature on that check, the first signature, represents his exercise of a power, admittedly a power that he shares in common with others, admittedly a power that is subject to a crude majoritarian view. And a vote is a little bit like that. You are determining by your vote who shall be elected as the representative of this constituency. You're determining that along with thousands of others in your constituency. And ultimately and indirectly, you're determining the outcome of the general election as a whole. But it won't do to understand this simply as a question of civil liberty. A vote is a power. And the question is, should prisoners have this power on an equal basis, along with all their fellow citizens, over the fate of the whole polity in this way. And I do think there, and as I said this to the committees, there's the grain, there's the seed of a possible argument for disenfranchisement. One who has shown indifference to the interests of others for the time being, 
might be justified in being excluded from the exercise of this tiny little bit of power that is juridic otherwise juridically theirs under the voting system. So seeing a vote as a, as, a, as a power, not just a liberty, did seem to me to be important in thinking about these matters. Is the right to vote a privilege? Well, I said to the committees, if they were interested, that privilege means five or six different things. I said to them, it's a privilege to be here, right? It means it's a sort of an honor. I don't think that's what they, what they meant by privilege. I said that it's like a privilege can be like an exemption, like parliamentary privilege, right? You can speak your mind on, somebody, on somebody's <laughs> reputation and not be liable for defamation so long as it's done within the precincts of Westminster. It can mean the absence of a duty. You have a privilege against self-incrimination uh, in the criminal law of most advanced democracies. I think the key meanings of privilege that those who raised this question had in mind is that a privilege might be something like a revocable permission, like the license you give somebody when you invite them into your home. Yeah? It's a permission for them to do what they would otherwise be prohibited from doing, and it can be revoked at any time by simply uh, asking them to, to leave. Maybe it's a privilege in that sense. Or equally, and this is more or less the same thing, but not quite, it could represent something that is discretionary in the discretionary gift of somebody, rather than any sort of entitlement. And I must say, some parliamentarians have been toying with what I think of as the dangerous idea that the vote is something which is in the gift of Parliament. That the vote is something that is within the gift of Parliament. Parliament can give it, and Parliament can take it away. Now, there's a sense in which that's obviously true. Parliament enacts the Representation of the People Act. Parliament regulates the elections. Parliament defines um, who gets to vote in a formalistic sense. And I think there's a sense in which it's substantively true, too. Apparently, I have the right to vote here, despite not being a British citizen because I'm a New Zealander resident. Um, and I believe that sort of voting is probably best regarded as a generous privilege that out of guilt towards the former denizens of empire, the government has, has extended uh, to uh, members of the Commonwealth. But there's a deeper substantive sense in which this is a very problematic position. Because the position of our constitution, this is Ian McLean again all over, is that their position as representatives is in our gift rather than our position as voters being within their gift. In the complicated, layered sense of trying to set out, I think all of these are true, but the last one is very fundamental. And there's something very dangerous about saying that it's up to Parliament, finally and ultimately, as a matter of political morality and fundamental principle, to decide who gets to vote, as though this were in their gift. Yeah? If uh, their, their position should be that they have the responsibility to make and administer the electoral laws, but the basis of their position is that they are subject to the voters, not the voters, in that sense, being subject to them. I thought for all of these reasons that maybe the privilege theory was not going to be particularly helpful in justifying disenfranchisement. I was asked whether this right, if it is a right, is absolute. I believe there are some rights that are absolute. I wrote a lot about torture over the last 10 years, and I believe the right not to be tortured is an absolute right. Certainly, it's a non-derogable right in the scheme of the European Convention. 
and under that derogation scheme, whereby in conditions of national emergency, a government can notify the Council of Europe that it's going to take measures derogating from its strict liabilities under the European Convention to detain people without trial, for example, or to limit free speech, or maybe to limit the operation of elections. Under the derogation scheme, there is specific provision that certain rights in the Convention may not be made the subject of derogation and the right not to be tortured, uh, like the right not to be enslaved and certain things about religious freedom are said to be non-derogable in this regard. It's remarkable that in Canada, Article 3, which confers the right to vote in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Liberties, is exempted from the possibility of legislative override set out in Section 33. In Canada, Parliament can legislate notwithstanding the Charter. But it can't legislate on the issue of withdrawing the right to vote notwithstanding the Charter. It's a different sort of non-derogation clause, but there it is. We know that the right to vote cannot be absolute if absolute means unregulated. It needs to be regulated. It needs to be regulated according to principles of political organization and stability, the frequency of elections, the voting procedures, the registration procedures, more seriously, the boundaries of the constituencies and the drawing and <coughs> redistricting and redrawing the boundaries of constituencies to maintain the equal value of people's votes. All of these matters require require regulation and one question is whether the exclusion of prisoners falls into that category of regulation or whether it's in a distinct category that isn't just about making the thing work but is about who fundamentally has the right to vote. Parliament decides whether it's 18 year olds or 21 year olds who have the vote. Wasn't there a proposal at one stage to enfranchise 16 year olds in Scotland? Yeah, it's on the table, it's on the table now. Right, there we go. Is it a right that can be made conditional? That was one of the things that the committees asked me. And at that stage, my American hackles were raised because in the United States, since the 1950s and 60s, there is immense suspicion of poll taxes, literary uh, literacy tests, and other tests of civic virtue that had been used, everybody acknowledges, in disenfranchising African Americans chairman of the committee that I visited in June said, well, doesn't the, the disenfranchisement of African Americans show that the Americans don't take the right to vote very seriously after all? And I said, no, they take it very seriously, and that's the measure of the disgrace of the disenfranchisement of uh, African Americans. But you might say at the level of deeper principle, deeper moral principle, that a right might be conditional in the sense that it's understood to be reciprocal and understood to be predicated on some reciprocal contract, some reciprocal relation between uh, your exercise of the right and your respect for the rights of others, especially for crimes that have victims. And I'll come back to that in conjunction with the point about uh, the right to vote as a power uh, later on in this presentation. Some people have suggested that there might be a special case for disenfranchisement in the case of electoral offences or offences against the, the scheme of representation. I said, you mean like parliamentary expenses? <laughs> <laughs> Long silence. And uh, uh, Is it a forfeitable right? As the right to liberty evidently is. Is it a forfeitable right? Well... 
We no longer subscribe to William Cobbett's indelible stain theory, although Florida evidently does, the indelible stain of felony. But that doesn't solve the problem of forfeitability if the forfeit was, were temporary, or temporary during the period of imprisonment, which may or may not be a lifetime disqualification. We are committed to the idea of inalienable rights, philosophically, I think. We certainly are committed to saying that certain fundamental rights are not forfeited and cannot be forfeited even by the most heinous offender, and I'll talk about that uh, in just a moment, the rights that you retain and the rights that you necessarily lose when you come under the discipline of a prison. But obviously, whether it's a forfeitable right is going to, in a sense, be the question at issue. And I didn't want to say either way that this was inconceivable, except to say that we had been very, very concerned in our tradition of political theory, in the words of Thomas Jefferson and others, or the work of John Locke and others, to insist that certain rights are inalienable. And that's one of the reasons there cannot be a, a um, consent-based theory of tyranny. And it's one of the reasons why there cannot be a consent-based theory of slavery, because those rights are themselves uh, inalienable and therefore couldn't have been sold for greater amounts of bread or greater amounts of security. The question arose, it was obviously central to the deliberations, whether the right to vote should be regarded as fundamental right, as though we could distinguish between several classes of rights beyond the distinctions that I've already drawn. One obvious point is it's not even in the main body of the European Convention. It's in the first protocol. On the other hand, court after court throughout the world have said, this is the quote in the South African Constitutional Court in 1999, the vote of each and each every citizen is a badge of dignity and of personhood. Or in Reynolds against Sims in the United States in 1964, the right to vote freely is the essence at the essence of a democratic society, and any restriction on that right strikes at the heart of representative government. What the court said in Canada sounds like the comfortable words in the, in the Anglican liturgy, but hear also what the Canadians said. Um, the right to vote is fundamental to our democracy and rule of law and cannot be lightly set aside. Now, that seems to me to be the issue. It can't be lightly set aside. And that's the American position as well. This cannot be lightly set aside. Because voting is a fundamental right, says the American Supreme Court, laws that deny citizens the right to vote must be necessary to promote a compelling, not just a legitimate, but a compelling state interest. Because voting is such an important right, very clear and very powerful arguments are needed to take it away. And this is not just a matter of rhetoric. You know, I produce an argument and announce that it's powerful. In the jurisprudence of human rights uh, in Europe, which includes this country, we now believe it's very important that if rights are to be limited at all, they have to be limited in a way that is proportional. And the relevant proportion is not between the disenfranchisement and the offense that has produced it, the relative proportion is between the disenfranchisement and the supposed benefits to society of disenfranchisement. You have to look at what society is supposed to gain by taking people off the electoral rolls. You then have to look at the fact that this does represent the qualification of not just any social interest, but a right, and you have to assess uh, whether the gain is too small to justify this reasonably momentous, but not impossible thing, um, excuse me, uh, but not impossible thing the, the um, 
the, the abrogation of a right. And that notion of a proportionality analysis seemed to me to be indispensable to what the European Court of Human Rights was saying in the Hearst case. They said, we know you have this provision in the Representation of the People's Act, but we have no evidence from your parliamentary record that its proportionality has ever been fully discussed in Parliament. We have no record in your parliamentary record that the legitimate aim of this disqualification has been clearly set out and the, and the aims substance assessed against this test of proportionality. And until you do that, the court said, we're, we are not going to uh, tolerate this, this uh, blanket disqualification. People say it's sometimes just an issue about whether it's a blanket disqualification or not a blanket disqualification. And the government and its submissions uh, in her said, well, it's not a blanket disqualification because we don't disqualify remand prisons, even though they are in custody. And the court said, no, that's not what we mean by a blanket disqualification. We mean a disqualification which has been put forward in a sort of unthinking way, not finely tuned to the least interference of the right possible necessary to achieve the legitimate object. We do this analysis in American constitutional jurisprudence all the time. It's called the strict scrutiny test. You have to identify the compelling social interest, then you have to show that the abrogation of the right is the least intrusive uh, means to pursue it. So, I mean, there were lawyers speaking to the committees who knew much more about that than I have, but the key thing was that the Hearst Court thought the, the UK Parliament had not properly considered the issue of proportionality. On the social contract, it, um, I was inclined to say first, like a philosophical smart-ass, that there was nothing on prisoner voting in the work of Hobbes, Locke, or Rousseau. <laughs> and that on their conception of the social contract, it wasn't at all clear uh, how there possibly could be. And that even when you come to modern contractarians like Immanuel Kant, John Rawls, and Tim Scanlon, their contract is purely a convenient fiction for doing some work in moral philosophy and doesn't really have any clear bearing on this. But I became quickly convinced listening to my interlocutors, and if I wasn't convinced by them, I would have been convinced by David Miller, that there is, there are important notions of social contract out there in the community that are not the exclusive province of the historical political theorists. David spoke about the social contract that underpins the welfare system, an informal set of principles and ideas that recognizes some sort of bargain or reciprocity between playing your part in the system, including paying into the system through taxes and having the benefits afforded to you. And I can see why similar logic might develop an informal idea, a quite respectable idea, that you get many of the benefits of society and you, the, the, uh, some of those are going to be conditional on your good behavior. It would be a further question, in my view, whether we were entitled to put voting into that category. We know that there are certain fundamental rights that are not conditional in that contractarian way. They don't say, yeah, everyone has a right not to be tortured, but it's part of the social contract. And if you're a terrorist attacking the fundamentals of the social contract, then I'm afraid your protection has been forfeited under the bargain. We don't do that with certain rights. And it's an open question, still to be decided, whether it's appropriate to do that for voting rights. But I do believe 
and this was part of the um, the humility I think I learned from this experience. It's very important for political theorists to listen sometimes when people talk about social contract because there may be ideas of social contract abroad which are important and coherent and compelling for a case like this that may not be the ones that we are used to teaching in our political theory seminars. I wanted to talk a little bit about this broader question of rights you lose in prison and rights you keep in prison. Two framing thoughts. One is you certainly lose some rights when you go to prison. You lose your liberty, not just your liberty to do this or that, you lose more or less the fundamentals of your liberty. The second point is a point that my father told me once. My father was an Anglican vicar uh, in Invercargill, New Zealand. And part of his job was seeing the people at the local Boston. And he once said that people get sent to prison as punishment. They don't get sent to prison for punishment, which I think was, 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 was an important one. So sentence is the deprivation of liberty. You're not deprived of your liberty, so you can't resist the other things that they do to you. So we need to be very, very worried about theories that prisoners have severed their ties to society, which is something that is often said. We know that we, we may not denationalize somebody. Um, we know that there's no such thing as outlawry or banishment uh, in the United Kingdom. There's no status of felony anymore. Um, there are rights that are lost. There are aspects of the loss of liberty or there are aspects of prison discipline and security. So you lose your basic liberty and freedom of movement and migration. You can't become an immigrant while you're in prison. Uh, you lose your freedom to choose work and occupation. The 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution says slavery and involuntary servitude shall not exist in the United States after the Civil War. Slavery and involuntary servitude shall not exist in the United States except as a punishment for crime. Right? A chilling um, juxtaposition. But you lose your freedom to choose work and occupation. You lose substantial but not total elements of your freedom of speech and probably freedom of assembly. You lose an awful lot of your privacy and you lose a lot of uh, the right of family life, although in the United States, there are cases about people getting married in prison, uh, people conceiving a child while they're in prison, usually by artificial insemination, and so on. But I won't go into that tangled web. But there are many other rights that are retained other than those that are incidental to the loss of liberty. So your right of um, freedom of worship is maintained. You can't be forced to participate in a worship ceremony uh, of a faith that is not yours, even if there is an established church. Your right of access to law. You remain a citizen and part of the polity in the sense you have access to law and access to the courts. I've mentioned there's no, you don't lose any right relating to torture or cruel, inhuman and degrading uh, treatment. Probably rights about discrimination uh, remain intact, rights to medical care and so on. More important than just simply producing a list is to insist on something like a strict principle of legality in this matter, which is that rights are not casually lost as a consequence of imprisonment. If they are lost, the loss must be highly regulated by law. And part of what the Hearst, the Hearst Court is doing is saying the mere passage of a statute casually 
without a great deal of thought about proportionality, may not satisfy the principle of legality on this state on this on this basis. The aims of punishment. Where are we on the song sheet? Uh, probably number seven. Yeah, I don't want to say a whole lot here. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of anyone who is deterred from offending by the threat of the loss of their vote. Some some nerd in an in a anorak was it Ian uh, who values voting above all else might think, my God, if I take this drug or steal this trinket, I will be. Deterred. Um, rehabilitation, the argument looks as though it could possibly go either way. That demanding the right to vote is either a sign or part of the process of rehabilitating yourself as a responsible member of the community. But people have been worried that, or people have thought that you could justify disenfranchisement either as part of the basic retributive package or to the extent that this is different from retribution, you could do it under the heading of denunciation. It's society's way of denouncing, showing how seriously they take the denunciation that part that punishment represents. In the United States, the main argument for punishment and incarceration these days is specific prevention, that we take the worst offenders just off the streets and prevent them offending, except we don't prevent their offending in prison, but we prevent their offending uh, in the general population. And I thought that if we were to build a theory, a justifiable theory of disenfranchisement, it would have to be along these lines. It would be akin to not allowing an undischarged bankrupt to have responsibility for a corporation, or not allowing somebody who had abused a position of trust with children to be entrusted with children again for a specifiable time in the future. Indispensable to this argument, and I don't think it's a compelling argument, but it seems to me to be in the ballpark of an appropriate sort of argument that might conceivably match the importance of the right that we are considering here, is this notion that a right is not just a liberty. It's a power that affects the position and interests of other people. Point I made before, analytically, comes home now in, in substantive form. When you're voting, each voter holds a little bit of power over the whole community in their hands. And we trust voters. We know that voters often vote their pocketbook, as we say in the United States. But we trust voters. We trust voters to um, to vote responsibly, because the interests of others are collectively, at any rate, and severally, to a certain extent, in their hands. And maybe the criminal who has committed a sufficiently serious offense against others has shown that they have some contempt for the interest of others, or depraved indifference to the interest of others, or at any rate, they, haven't, they can't be trusted to take the interest of others seriously. I think if you could develop an argument along those lines, probably with a reasonably high threshold of offending, then you might have something that could be the sort of argument that takes seriously the nature and importance of the right that you're offending, excuse me, that you're abrogating, and that would nevertheless um, indicate some rationale for these, for these matters. Can I say something finally? I know I need to stop, uh, Liz, uh, about the, the other issue that I was asked to address, which was the question of, what's this court in Strasbourg doing telling us how to treat our prisons? Yeah. 
what's, what's this court in Strasbourg doing telling us how to treat our prisoners? Isn't this a matter that should be settled democratically? And as Ian observed, I am well known for maintaining strong opposition to strong judicial review on that very basis. But it struck me that there were three or four key points that needed to be added to that general opposition to mitigate maybe the ferocity of the Waldron position denouncing uh, judge-made limits on democratically elected legislators. Judges voting by majority to strike down legislative majorities. The first point is to distinguish between what I call strong judicial review of legislation. And remember here we're talking about judicial review of legislation, not judicial review of executive action in a different category altogether. Distinguishing between strong judicial review of legislation and weak judicial review of legislation. Uh, it's a matter of great interest at the moment that new forms of judicial review have emerged, including the form embodied in the Human Rights Act, where the courts do not have the authority to refuse to apply a statute, and they don't have the authority to strike down the statute or to remove it from the statute books, but they can issue a declaration of incompatibility that acts as a sort of canary in the mind, in the mind to warn the populace that something rum has gone on here, and that also opens a way to fast channel uh, remedy by Parliament if Parliament is so disposed. I believe myself that an adverse judgment of the court in Strasbourg amounts to a form of weak judicial review, albeit rather strong weak judicial review, because <laughs> we do have a treaty obligation to abide by the terms of the judgments. But the point is that the court in Strasbourg said, it's up to you guys. Yeah. It's up to you. Produce us a piece of convincing legislation on this. This is what we know in the trade as judicial dialogue, that instead of just peremptorily slapping down the legislature, the elected legislatures, the courts say, we are dissatisfied with what you've done on this issue, try again. That's what the Canadian Supreme Court did in the survey decision. Uh, so the survey number one and survey number two, and for all I know, survey number three, as the dialogue goes along, the usual dialogue between parent and child, will this do? No. Well, what about this? Will this do? No. <laughs> what about this? So it's a little bit of a one-sided dialogue because the court has a final word. But combined with weak judicial review, it may not be an offensive mode of interaction in a constitutionalized system. The second point, I mentioned somebody now late in lament, John Hart Ely, who wrote a book called Democracy and Distrust in 1980, a theory of judicial review. And what he said is that the case for judicial review is at its strongest when parliament or the legislature seems to be messing with the process of representation itself. Because this is not just like Strasbourg striking down a law about corporal punishment in the Isle of Man. This is Strasbourg striking down a law passed by parliament to restrict the rights of voters, electing members of parliament. And the idea that Eli indicated is that we ought to have special alarm bells going off. Not that this is conclusive, but it's always been the nightmare of Westminster-style systems, that they will use their majority powers in parliament to undermine the voting rights of the... Now, this is happening on a tiny, small scale, as opposed to, for example, voting to postpone an election, uh, because it would be inconvenient. But it's not an inconsiderable thing. This was an issue about voting being determined by Parliament, and it might be thought that Parliament is entitled, uh, ought to accept the discipline of special scrutiny when they are denying the right of some of the people in the community to vote. 
And the other thing that Eli said, and this is applying what's known, no reason why you should know all this, the famous footnote four in the Caroline Products case from the 1920s, where um, Judge Stoner um, said, judicial review is at its most important, not just when there is majoritarian legislation, but when the legislation is against a distinct and insular major a minority that cannot, cannot easily find allies and coalition building, and maybe uh, the subject of being despised, maybe the subject of prejudice. When the courts are protecting a distinct and insular minority of that sort, maybe they ought to give special scrutiny to legislation. Now, it may well be that our despising of prisoners is justified, but it's despising nonetheless. And we know that there are, in every system, some concerns about the interests of prisoners that are legitimate concerns. So one question that Eli asked and that I asked is, are we sure that if prisoners are denied the right to vote, that they will be, in some sense, virtually represented in Parliament, in the way the children are virtually represented in Parliament? that there will nevertheless be at least some parliamentarians who will make it their mission to look at what's happening in prisons. Because in our system, what is most important is that the interests of everybody, as well as the voice of everybody, that the interests of everybody one way or another be, be uh, represented in part. And I don't want to exaggerate this because it's what the House of Commons said to the Americans in 1776. You know, what are you complaining about? You're virtually represented at Westminster by, <laughs> by various people. So. But nevertheless, it seemed to me that... 95% of the British population, not only the Americans, 95% of people in this country were virtually represented. Yes, at that time, that's right. So the question is, um, are we satisfied with the arrangements for virtual representation, or are we satisfied for the interests of these people to have no representation whatsoever? So. Just to finish up, in a way, my response to Peter's point that this is not the most compelling or interesting uh, uh, issue to be talking about later on a Saturday afternoon um, is partly what's come up and we have no choice but to deal with it. But also, it's an iceberg issue. It opens up deeper issues about the nature of the right to vote, which are worth thinking about anyway, and would be worth thinking about even uh, not in relation to the situation of prisons. And it's an iceberg issue because it opens up questions about judicial review and judicial authority, which would be worth considering even if not in this particular context. Thank you very much Thank indeed. You. Thank you.